All right, welcome to episode number 59 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. Catch new episodes every Monday morning on iTunes. Of course, you can also catch them on thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast. We post all sorts of other interesting content. Also, take a second to find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash thebeardednktrs. We ran out of characters. Thanks a lot, Twitter. <laughs> creating our name. We're also on Facebook and Google+. Plus. Also, a newsletter. All right, let's get right down into it. My man, what are you drinking tonight to get into the mood to bring everybody the latest in internet marketing? Sure thing. For this week, same as last, some Glen Fittage 15 Double Neat. We do have some new scotches coming, which we're going to be sampling on the show live. So we will try to exude the experience through the microphones maybe in a week or two. They're coming over from England, so it's going to take a while to get yeah, here. Yeah, overseas but. shipping. And there's a massive palette of scotch coming our way. Yeah, we will definitely look forward to that on future episodes. How about you? In the meantime, I am sticking to the basics. I'm actually not doing what I've done in the last couple rounds, but I'm doing Johnny Walker Black. Okay. All right. Return. I think that was like episode 10 yeah, it's, back that's in the day. real OG. <laughs> let's get into it. Run us down through the few topics we have and let's get into it. So for tonight, we're going to review some of the top e-commerce sites that were performing last year. And maybe by mentioning some of the brands, it will spur checking them out and how their tactics might apply to you if you're in the e-commerce space. Tactics to improve blog readership. How do you get people interacting? It's not just enough to write on the internet. How do we get people reading and interacting? Moving right along to multiple product pages, how do we optimize maybe those special circumstances where we need multiple pages to communicate our products? So the last one is a contentious topic, which will be involving social media and SEO, but we'll keep it kind of vague and cover that at the end of the show. So kicking things off, yeah, Rob, you love your studies. Well, so. it's not really a study per se, but uh, I love my facts and figures. Yes. We'll put it that way. And I'm going to get to this one via a game of some sort. Ooh. Uh, maybe we should do this every week in some okay. way. So basically, Depends this on how is. I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you fail terribly, we'll definitely do it every week. <laughs> so, this is basically just a report on the top internet retailers, as you sort of mentioned, for 2013. I have also some historical data on all of these so we can sort of, you know, make mention of some trends that have emerged recently. But number one, this is question number one of your quiz for today Who was the top? internet retailer for 2013. Mm. And if you get this wrong, I will try to bitch slap you across <laughs> the table. I'm going to say Amazon. You are correct. Yes. It's been Amazon, though, since 2003. What? So get on my I don't, I don't know if anyone's ever out-competed Amazon in that category. So question number two, though. Let's see if you can ballpark this. I'll, I'll give you plus or minus 10. I'm not even going to tell you what the metric is, but I'll give you some plus or minus, some leeway here. 10% I'll give you plus okay. or minus. What was Amazon's revenue? And I will give you this hint. It's in billions. Yes. What was Amazon's revenue for 2013 from internet sales? I think with how much me and you purchased, we might pass them into the trillions. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to say $600 billion. Damn, not even close. Six, <laughs> I mean, I wish. $67 billion. Oh. Although I think you're right. Yeah. If they counted our sales, we'd probably be $600 billion. <laughs> So $67 billion. But, you know, I won't ask you this question. I'll just tell you outright. The closest competitor is at $18 billion. So they are smoking. Ooh, not even close. Uh, everybody else. And then beneath that, it drops down to $10 billion, And then it's just piddly, just fused <laughs> few billion dollars Your a year. hundreds of millions of dollars. Get out of here. Yeah, that's, that's a joke. So last question I will ask you, though. 
Amazon was number one at $67.855 billion. Who is number two at $18.3 billion for 2013? I can give you a hint, and that is that they've had a meteoric rise since 2010. I don't know. I think your hint actually is throwing me. I'm trying to rack my brain at okay. the meteoric rise. All right, so I'll just I'll just throw it out there. It's Apple. Oh, Apple. That doesn't count. Online <laughs> online retail sales for Apple. Wow, that must include all that. Um, well, I wonder iTunes if purchases that, that people make with phones. And, and crap. I'm wondering if they count in-store purchases that are done online as online sales. Um, yeah, I mean. I'm that's cheap. I would. <laughs> I I had imagined that all of that is simply from people buying crap on their iPhones from the iTunes store. So everyone else on the list, though, you know what's interesting is Staples is on this list, Office Depot is on this list, Office Max is on this list. And there's three stores that sell all the same exact stuff, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure at the, the same prices, but all in the top 14 largest retailers. Other interesting notes: Walmart, as you were joking, is number four. Ooh. Yeah, Walmart number four, Sears number five. Wow. That's a weird one. Yeah. QVC, right behind Sears. Sort of makes sense. People use that? Yeah. Netflix is up there, though, right behind QVC. And then the rest of them are just sort of like, I think it's a lot of office supply. So Dell, CDW, Granger, Costco, that kind of stuff. Right. But just interesting to get a feel for. Who are the If you want to know what the big players are doing, because I think there's some people on that list with, you know, maybe you didn't think were maybe as big of a player as they really are. Check out their websites, see how they're doing some of their internet marketing strategies because they're behemoths. Obviously, with the amount of money that is involved, they have to be dedicating some efforts on optimization, things like that. So check out those sites, see how they're doing things and take things with a grain of salt. A lot of them will sometimes rely heavily on their brand where they might be doing things that we wouldn't necessarily recommend. But that's not to say that they're not smart themselves and maybe have reasons for doing things. So check them out. We'll tweet out the link for the lists and you can get your research on. Moving right along. So we wanted to take some time. We feel like we've neglected the content blog crowd for a while. An essential part to many businesses other than their maybe their primary operations. Maybe you're a lead gen company. Maybe you do e-commerce products, whatever it might be, blogs and creating in-house content has now come into its own. And many companies have to have focus on that. And some businesses actually revolve all around blogging. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to kind of take a look and give some tips. We were actually spurred on by, uh, if you haven't checked them out before, Moz, but particularly their Whiteboard Friday videos are usually pretty good. And this is actually one hot off the presses that Rand, who puts these together, centered around how to increase your blog engagement and readership. And I thought there were a couple notes to take from the video that I thought a lot of people don't necessarily talk about or kind of giving some practical and tactical advice to people on some things to consider. So the first topic he discussed, which I thought was interesting because I don't really hear many people in the space mention this as a real takeaway, but he mentioned that before he really got Moz and his blogging career off the ground, how he found a great way to get people coming on to his written articles and actually engaging with them was to actually be engaged and frequent somewhere else. And so he mentions in this video that before he got Moz off the ground, he specifically invested time into six or seven different forums and message boards to establish some credibility there and create an online social profile and a name to recognize in these ecosystems. And then he found that now had tentacles into some other places where he could message people that were regulars to come check out his content, give them feedback on how he might can make it better and things like that. 
And he said that he found that that was a great way to have an audience to reach and help kickstart your career or have some longevity in there, potentially reaching out to those communities that you were established in, having some co-writing type of events and things like that, which I thought was an interesting tactic too. I don't think a lot of people talk about before you even get started, maybe you need to invest in number one, maybe learning about what you're talking about, but two, being a part of another community to help organically grow your own efforts. Yeah, well, I think that helps build momentum potentially. So you've already established a brand, you know, like you were saying, in the other communities. And then when you launch your own, you can now throw a bunch of traffic. You have a bunch of eyeballs now who will pay attention to what you're saying. Because no one wants to read a blog that has no comments on any of the articles. And there's just no feel that it's relevant or that people care about what this person has to say. So why should I? Exactly. So the next, well, this actually isn't in order. I actually moved this one up. But quality content should always trump frequency. And I think that this is something that a lot of companies should probably take more to heart. You know, I think that a lot of us get in the habit of meeting deadlines or we create a content schedule that we have to stick to. Mm -hmm. And over time, I think that that can be the demise of some people because you're just not keeping up the quality standards. You know, you've established a, you've established a guideline that you have to follow But sometimes you have writer's block where there's not good content out there to feed you and start slipping your standards. Then your readership starts suffering as well and your brand identity. And then now your blog just becomes just like everyone else, a way where it's just cluttering up my Feedly or my Google Reader or whatever it might be. And it's not just the quality that you essentially proposed to me in the beginning and why Mm -hmm. I subscribe to you. So carefully consider it's okay to have a content schedule, but also always consider it's okay to break out of that mold if you need to. If you need some more time to curate like a really good article, then go ahead and not post for a couple of days and work on that quality, that cornerstone piece, I think is what you said a couple of podcasts ago, which I thought was Yeah, good. yeah. We were, I think we were talking about uh, content strategies on the last podcast. Mm-hmm. I think we had a couple of topics that went more in depth on this. I think it is important to have a content schedule, but at the same time, you know, like you're saying sometimes, oh, well, I have to get something out you know, every X, you know, what is it, Tuesday mornings or something like that. And here it is Tuesday morning. Now I have to half-ass something together just to get something out there because I told myself I've had a content schedule. I think it's sort of twofold. Don't get yourself in a position like that. But if you do find yourself, don't just put something out that's terrible just to put something out. The next piece of advice he had was connecting with your commentators and reaching out to them. I think that only a few times ever, I don't always comment on blogs. I'm not a frequent commenter. But when you do. But when I do, and I have in the past, I can only think of maybe one or two times actually that someone has reached out and thanked me for my participation or engaged me even further. And I can say that one time that stuck out in particular was I tweeted something out mentioning Avinash because it was an article that he had put together for some Google Analytics strategies. And he direct messaged me back. It's probably just an automated script running for his Twitter account. But having that personal connection, like thanking me for my comment, that actually did make a difference. It was something that I I obviously remembered. And so I think that he has a pretty good tip there, especially when you're initially growing. And he talked about, you know, maybe get your creep on, go visit their LinkedIn or their email address and shoot them a quick note thanking them and maybe soliciting some more feedback. Or if you notice that they are a maybe a prime mover, do some investigation, look and see if they have content out there. Maybe they want to co-write an article with you or you want to ask their opinion on something and quote them. Because people love celebrity on the internet. Well, yeah. Well, I think that just... 
someone leaving a comment on your site and you just simply replying back saying thanks. I mean, it doesn't have to be really going out of your way or, sure. or asking a follow-up question or anything like that. That's something that we try to do here at the Beard Marketers as much as possible. You know, if someone mentions us in a tweet, we try to get back at them. And I think a key part of why we're good at that, well, number one, because we think it's important. But number two, we've really gone out of the way to make our email notifications rock solid in regards to that. We don't get all the junk Twitter notifications about Mm -hmm. anything else, but we do get the ones that where someone mentions us or replies to something that we've said and similar with Facebook and all those other things. So if you set those up properly, you get those notifications, take action on those things Mm -hmm. and follow up with those people. More of a tactical piece of advice that I think some people might struggle to implement if you're already at a certain point. But he said, from an SEO standpoint, never, ever put a blog on a separate root directory or subdomain. If you want as much juice as possible from your blog to go to your site, then just go ahead and make a separate section on your primary domain. Do not put it on a subdomain, but just maybe create a folder or something like that where you install your blog. That will ensure you get the best bang for your buck for your content. And he gave a lot of reasons why, but we don't have to really get into that. If you already have a blog set, that might be a little difficult for you to implement, but something to consider at least if you are in the early stages or planning one out. The last two that I'll talk about really quickly is homegrown visuals. So he talked about that in the content space in the blog sphere, there is a propensity to share visuals if they're in post and they're done really well. And he said that, you know, keep in mind that when you have visuals on your blog and they could get picked up to make sure that you have your own branding on there and that it looks unique, because if it does get spread virally, you want your message and your name getting out there. So don't necessarily use meme generators or different tools out there that will automatically generate you visuals. That might save you some time, but he said you might also lose out on if there is some virility that comes from that image, you've kind of lost the aspect of making it your own or people necessarily associating that with you, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then lastly, this is something we spent a lot of time on is having an email subscription portion of your blog and make sure you research your tools, but actually engage those lists, get people coming back to your content. I know a lot of people have a lot of tools to subscribe to blogs and things like that and can be overwhelming and get lost in the shuffle. But having a newsletter or an email subscription type aspect to your blog can help you rise your content above. I mean, I know you just sent out a pretty email today to our email subscribers. So consider that as a strategy as well. Don't just necessarily rely on RSS feeders and things like that to uh, get your content out there. All right, I think that's enough on the blog aspect of things. Moving right along, getting back into e-commerce because we sort of yeah. because with these tactics, you will be top 10 next year and the list that Rob just read. <laughs> so how do we create awesome multi-product? Yeah, so here's how you beat on Amazon and sell more than 600 something billion dollars in revenue. I wanted this one to maybe be more of a discussion. What got me interested in this or maybe got me thinking about this was a blog post by Marketing Experiments our friends over there, they had a a sort of case study where they compared, okay, here's how we laid out this multiple product page prior, and here's how we, you know, moved things around, and this is the kind of lift we got. And I don't think it's necessarily that important to give you the specifics of what happened in that example, but I think it brings up a good point, and that is so many companies sell different package sizes for certain things or different colors for different things or different sizes or whatever it is, or even similar products on the same page. They'll sell them all on the same page, and so how do you display those in a way that optimizes conversion or optimizes revenue or whatever it is your goal is for that page 
Oftentimes it's just to make the most money, but sometimes, you know, maybe you want to sell a product that doesn't make you as much money because you want to get more exposure or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So anyway, how can we display those things in different ways? What are some different strategies? I know we've both run tests on these types of pages for years now, so I'm sure we both have some little anecdotes we can add to this. But a recent one that we ran with one of our clients was centered around they had separate product pages for what were essentially very similar products. And we combine them all into one with the ability to sort of select the different products via drop downs and some other easy little ways to get to the other products. And we defaulted to one of them. We increased transactions and revenue both by very significant numbers. The specifics aren't very important here. but So that's an example of one method you could use to rearrange multiple product displays. Another is, and this is one that we see all the time, those product matrices that you mm-hmm. see where, okay, this package has this many features, this package has this many features. And there's so many different ways you can arrange those, be it horizontally, vertically, giving more visual weight to the product that you want people to buy. Right. And so I think that all of those things warrant testing because depending on the niche that you're in, you can get massively different performance. I think that a lot of people tend to copy their competitors, especially in these sort of product layout type things. But I don't think that's the way to go because your features, your different things that you can promote as being important make a massive difference. So do you have any specific examples for tests you've run recently where you're maybe listing multiple products on a page and you're trying to increase whatever it is you're trying to increase sales or revenue or whatever it is? I've run some in the past, and I I think that a lot of times what we find with companies is they get too overzealous with how much they're displaying to the user. So with some companies that we've worked with in the past, they have a lot of options and a lot of different packages that they've built. The prevailing wisdom for a lot of people is that more choice is better. But in many times, reining people in a bit and limiting their choice can oftentimes net you gains. Thinking of it from a cognitive load standpoint, it's a lot for me to process when there's a lot of packages and things like that. Now, someone like myself might appreciate something like that, but That's where it goes into the testing comment that you had. Maybe your audience is different and maybe that works well for them. Um, But for the general population, at least in our experience, having too much can be a detriment. Additionally, one of the recommendations that we've had with some of our partners is to actually introduce some more steps into the process. Maybe you don't need everyone selecting everything on just one page. Perhaps you generate a modal box or it's like an in-page refresh to take them down a system of selecting things because then it's not so much thought going into one page and it just feels, it goes back to again being overwhelmed. So maybe you have them select one feature, refresh, and you're walking them down this logical path so they can just focus and make it an easy decision. And it's against what a lot of optimization companies and quotes will recommend because it's introducing more steps. But we've run quite a few tests where that actually will work better in many cases because, again, it's less for me to process and I can easily go through the system. So before we move on to the next topic, I wanted to speak. I had a, a specific example of that first one you were talking about where removing options can oftentimes lead to more conversions. With this one particular partner, they had several packages. I think they had something like eight different packages, all the same sort of software, but different features and different limits on the accounts. What we did was we removed a lot of the information on each package itself. Some of it was duplication, like, oh, customer support, you get it with all of them. We removed things like that. Mm -hmm. We also flat out removed a few of the packages and hid them at the bottom of the page, like need more 
whatever than the, the three standard ones that we're showing, like click here and expands out and you can look at all the other plans, we were able to massively increase conversion by just really simplifying the page and removing a lot of the options for people. So that's a specific example of that. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's something that people don't oftentimes, again, because most people think the more that we can give people, the more opportunity we have of catching someone or mm-hmm. having something that they like. But oftentimes that comes at the cost of making it so that people just feel overwhelmed at choice. So be careful how much you're displaying to people and really think through the logical progression that your visitors need to do on that page to make that decision. Also, keep in mind competing elements. So if you have a complex product page, something where people are going to have to select a lot of features, things like that, you might want to suppress other template features you have on your e-commerce site. So things like recently viewed or sidebar elements Again, you got to remember there's going to be a lot going on with these visitors and having those types of elements might just create even more load on people to process and get the decision done. You might want to make some small tweaks on suppressing some of those elements to keep the page neat, simple, and as focused as possible. So maybe that is an option for you as well. So bringing us home, social media and SEO. Oh, I feel like there's a lot of bickering in that space, you know. There's the SEO people who are like, ah, social media, that's what the new kids do. It doesn't make any difference. And the social media people with their Ray-Ban sunglasses yeah. and, all, you know, their Starbucks. They're like, no, no, this is very important. And yeah, neither one of them can really prove anything. No. So that's, that's why we get all this infighting. Right. So there are a few areas where social media can actually impact your SEO. Sometimes it's not immediate, and some of these are more conceptual in nature, uh, but they are ones that do make a difference. So number one is link potential. Now, this is one of those like theoretical, the more exposure that we get on social media, the more potential that we have for people to be sharing our content generating us links out there. Now that is something that you can somewhat track as long as you're doing your social media strategy smartly and maybe adding some tracking parameters and things like that. You're hoping that some of that stuff will then be shared within that linking structure, things like that. But that is one that SEO people cannot really deny that social media can bring to the table. I bet it is sometimes hard to track that necessarily, but it is something that is very real. Also, what you might want to consider moving along is personalization. So particularly at Google, and I think that Bing and Yahoo will eventually catch up to this, but you know, it has been a push of Google's for a long time now to personalize your Google visit, personalize your results, and personalize what they're serving you to be more relevant. With some of your social media actions, search engines can pick up on some of those signals and what you're digesting depending on the paths that you are taking there. So if you are engaging people more and more on social media, you do have the opportunity for some of the search engines to better curtail their results that are going to match you better based on some of your social media efforts. Again, this is one that's really hard to track, but it is one that's becoming more and more a possibility with some of the efforts that Google has on personalization and their search results. But as oftentimes, if you work in the SEO space, a frustrating element to that because you'll be working with clients or whatever, and your search engine results pages will be completely different for the same queries and things like that. But um, it is something that has become a mainstay on Google and is something that's probably just going to get more and more prevalent. Quick tip there, AdWords preview tool. I mean, you can use it to show you ads, but Mm -hmm. also sort of, I guess, in air quotes, clean SERP results Mm -hmm. uh, for search terms you want to use. This is more of a a theoretical, I would say, and maybe a stretch, but some people will will, uh, say that 
as your social media efforts grow, there is a possibility for people to be searching for your brand more and more on search engines. And they can pick up on those signals that there is increased search query traffic for particular brands. So I need to value them more as a player in my search engine results for other type of keywords because now I'm getting the signals that more and more people visiting these search engines care about this brand. So now it should be rising up the ranks as an influencer on the web. So lots of webs in that one. Uh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're getting awfully <laughs> deep on that one. I have Good thing I have my waiters on for this <laughs> section. <laughs> the bullshit's getting... The, uh, I will say, though, and I'll wrap up with this, one that I would say a little more out of the weeds is authorship. Assuming you've done a good job creating content, it's relevant, then... The authorship aspect of search engine results pages can play a benefit for you in helping you stand out from the crowd. We've also talked about in the past, though, on the podcast that sometimes authorship might be a distraction or something that would cause me some hesitation to click on a link. I think there's a lot of examples with that. but And sometimes when we're searching for something, we're not expecting a personal style result that can often throw us. So you want to watch authorship very carefully. But I know that there's been a lot of studies out there by like Search Engine Land and Google uh, has a couple of case studies on this on there is a click through rate gain oftentimes for having authorship as a part of results pages. So that is an aspect where social media can directly influence some of our search engine results page. But it's one of those places where you need to tread very carefully and actually come up with a strategy. It's not just enough just to throw up an authorship tag on your site and then you're done. Carefully plan out, where do I want this to happen? Does this actually make sense for us? Or are our competitors just doing it? We're trying to copy them. But that can be one that can lend your brand some additional exposure. So that's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. If you had a great time like we did, leave us a review on iTunes. Greatly appreciate it. Share with friends, colleagues. We love the support. Lovers, <laughs> Lovers of course. If you have an idea for the show, maybe it's something that you've been struggling with for a while, you don't really know where to turn, or you have an idea that you really want us to discuss and you have some thoughts around it, but you'd be curious what we have to say about it. You can either drop us a line on the website, beardmarketers.com, contact us page, do it to it, or you can actually give us a phone call, yes, a phone call, at 904-270-9603. Leave us a voicemail, and we will work you into the content schedule. Yeah, but for those in this generation, just shoot us a text at that number, (laughs) and we'll get it. We do actually pay attention, though, seriously, to all the recommendations we get, and every time we've gotten one so far, we cover it on the next show. So if Mm -hmm. you seriously want us to cover something on the next week, Hit us up. We'll do it. Thank you again for your time, and we'll see you next week.